If you speak the truth, have a foot in the stirrup. Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Sea Realm Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and this is episode number 577, The Thing at the Window, with guest James, prepared for release onto the World Wide Web on Monday, December 14th, 2021. And for those of you who are tuning into this podcast for the first time, and I don't expect for there to be a lot of you, but uh, for those in that position... I started this podcast back in October of 2006. At the time, I was living in Gravit, Arkansas, having moved there from Fayetteville, Arkansas, having moved there from where I am now, Berryville, Arkansas. But since I started the podcast in Gravit, I have since lived in, well, one other place in Arkansas, and then Maryland, Tennessee, New York City, Vermont, and now, here I am, back in Arkansas. This time, I'm at my mom's place in Berryville, Arkansas. So in that time, I've gone down a deep rabbit hole and come out again. When I started the podcast, I was against the drug war. <laughs> Still am, but you know, it doesn't occupy a lot of my thoughts like it used to. I was enthusiastic about the prospects for nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, genetic engineering, uh, all the stuff that you might think of as being the, uh, the ingredients for a techno-utopian mindset. I was also very captivated by the lyrical ravings, you might say, of Terence McKenna, which included his prediction that on December 21st, 2012, we would experience a, a, a maximal peak in novelty, you know, the historical novelty that he had developed the time wave zero to, uh, to chart out that that was going to come to such a head on the 21st of December 2012 that it would basically be the singularity. Although that wasn't the word he was using, he was using the word concrescence. But then soon after I started the podcast, uh, I discovered that I wasn't really interested in talking much about the drug war. Uh, I wasn't really interested in entertaining, entertaining any arguments in favor of it, really. And I thought that if uh, after a couple of conversations or episodes on the topic, if you still thought the drug war was a good idea, you probably weren't going to be interested in the sorts of media that I would be producing. So that topic just sort of fell by the wayside. The people that I wanted to talk to about technological issues, they didn't answer my email invitations. Who did answer my in email invitations? Well, one Dmitry Orloff, who set me on the path to, uh, to peak oil and the, the peak oil obsession, this idea that the world was going to be reduced to a pre-industrial status in short order. Nobody, or almost nobody, was prepared for it. And, worst of all, the powers that be knew about it and were keeping it from us. You might argue, I mean, if you're a petroleum geologist, you might say that peak oil is just a fact. It's not a conspiracy theory, but there definitely was a conspiracy theory element to it in the way that I discovered it. Fast forward many years. The fast collapse of industrial civilization from a lack of fossil fuel energy has not occurred. If I could go back to 2006 and tell myself, hey, I'm, I'm from the year 2021, the lights are still on, cars are still running, 
Gasoline is available everywhere you look, and yeah, yeah, it's expensive, but you know, it's it's not in your top ten list of worries. Focus on something else. You know, if I if I could see the world of 2021 back in 2006, I would not have taken peak oil seriously. You know, maybe as a sort of uh, abstract intellectual exercise, but certainly not as this looming thing that was going to disrupt everybody's lives, whether or not they were willing to, you know, muster the courage to look it in the eye and face it as it came down on them, or whether they were just going to distract themselves with trivialities and shopping and status contests. The person that you're going to hear from in today's episode of the podcast is somebody who, like me, was interested in psychedelics. He uh, was also very caught up in the poetic ramblings of Terence McKenna. He was a regular listener to the Psychedelic Salon podcast. And thanks to Lorenzo, uh, for years, there was a link, a prominent link to the Sea podcast on the Matrix Masters homepage. So if you discovered the Psychedelic Salon podcast, you were quite likely to have also discovered the Sea podcast in, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008. So somebody who came into the Sea on that vector... James, is about to tell his story. So I first heard from James back in 2011. And I know that because I just searched through my Gmail inbox uh, for his email address. And the first message that I received from him 55 messages ago was from 2011. And it's just an introduction. I haven't reread it, actually. But I just spent uh, quite a bit of time with James. So I don't really need to, you know, ground myself in uh, who he presented himself as and you know, I, I have a very fresh impression of, of the person from face-to-face, real-world interaction. But James and I have been to a lot of the same places, uh, specifically Kansas City, Missouri, Columbia, Missouri, which is where the University of Missouri is, Mizzou. We both went to school there. Uh, and right near the Kansas City Art Institute, where I have spent some time, I spent some time there in my youth, right across the street from that is the William Rockhill Nelson Museum of Art which has an amazing Asian art collection, including this fabulous wooden statue of the Bodhisattva Guan Yin. And it is Guan Yin, and that particular representation of Guan Yin, that is the cover art for this episode. I have basked in front of that statue in a psychedelically enhanced state, as has James, I believe, although we didn't know each other at the time. But at one point, I'm going to make a reference to across the street from the Art Institute at the Nelson. That is the William Rockhill Nelson Museum of Art. All right, here is my conversation with James. You're listening to the Sea Realm Podcast. C stands for consciousness. All right, well, I am in Eureka Springs with fellow Gen Xer, James. And uh, it's, it's miniature doomsday in the crypto markets, has been for a few days, but in terms of the sorts of doom that I was talking about on the Sea Realm podcast for years, seems like we're pretty far from it. What are your thoughts on doom? <laughs> <laughs> um, I was kind of raised on doom, you know, like uh, to me, uh, doom is uh, like a personal psychology um, that goes about as deep as it gets uh, in my mind. So was it religious doom that you were raised on? Yeah, that was the kind of overarching structure. Was that it was uh, 
uh, contextualized in a religious framework. Yes, but uh, it was just very real to my family. Um, I, as I got older, I it, I it, I realized that, that when other people said they were religious or they're Christians or they go to church, um, that meant a certain thing to them and had a certain reality. Um, but it didn't mean that you were kind of like fever pitched, you know, into that and that everything about your life was defined by um, that kind of thinking. So, so what was, when you talk about your family, are you talking a nuclear family or an extended family? Nuclear family and then some of the family surrounding that was like my grandfather was the kind of patriarch figure for the uh, the religious community. There was an actual church, like an institutional church, that they were part of when I was very young. But then when I was uh, nine, they broke off from that and started meeting in each other's homes. And it was like uh, just like five families that were all together. But they were all in my family, uh, like aunts and uncles, cousins, and whatnot. And did you all live nearby? I was born in Fort Smith, Arkansas, but we I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, southeastern Oklahoma. So, yeah, in this region, this looks like where I grew up, exactly. And did those five families live in one place? They all lived in the same town. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandfather owned a business that many of them worked at, and they were very close. And then when I was, um, let's see, seven, uh, my grandfather started getting these prophecies. Uh, they believed in modern day revelation that the spirit or Jesus or God or various you know figures could speak through people. So, but they started getting these specific messages to my grandfather that defined them as one of the lost tribes of Israel from the Bible that had this. Uh, modern purpose, which was to prepare for the end of the world, the apocalypse. And so then from then when I was, you know, nine to 12 or so, that started evolving more. And by the time I was 15, they were told to everybody to sell their businesses and their houses and go and uh, buy land and live together and form this community that would be the preparation for uh, the end times. How old were you at the time? Um, when we finally moved and set up shop at, in that endeavor, they actually um, sort of tried it once before that when I was like uh, 13 and they bought a piece of land and, and built all of these um, homes but then before they could even really move in they were told to change course and go somewhere else so then when I was 15 they went to uh, where they ended up, which was in, uh, oh, near Kansas City area. Mm-hmm. Would it be fair to call it a compound? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. They first built a community building that looks pretty identical to uh, the pyramids in Central America. It's built into the earth like that, mm-hmm. and it just has like one entrance and no windows and a basement full of every kind of provision. They were preppers before that was a thing. So that was a full-on doomstead. I I don't know the right terminology, but yeah, sounds right. It sounds kind of like a bunker. 
No windows. Yes. Covered. Yeah. They were expecting Mad Max type scenarios. Mm -hmm. They were expecting, you know, raiders, you know, maybe nuclear uh, war. I don't just whatever level of catastrophe, however far you take it, um, including, you know, divinely sanctioned, you know. So, I mean, this isn't any kind of random craziness. I mean, this is the end, you know. Mm -hmm. So roll out the, you know, dark horses or whatever, you know, the apocalyptic imagery is. <laughs> you know the worst case scenario and uh, this was prophecy given to your grandfather yes came through him was there a, a time frame of when it was supposed to happen yeah soon soon so <laughs> and you were 15 by the time your family took up residence yes. you know, in the compound so that's nearly old enough to say uh, I'm out of here how long did you stick with it? It is, um, except, uh, I mean, it was an odd kind of situation because, I mean, everything I'm saying, it probably sounds like some kind of David Koresh, like, I don't know what it sounds like, but the odd thing was, is like, to an outward observer, you wouldn't know any of this was really going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's amazing how people can compartmentalize um, because... I mean, my grandfather owned a bank. All these people had jobs and were successful and acted fairly normal. It's just that they were having this... It's like they were all tripping, you know, but on some kind of bad acid. Like the, or, you know, not bad acid, but just... It's like they were tripping, but they were letting themselves be susceptible to a lot of fear and just feeling very unempowered and afraid. I mean, I was raised in such a culture of paranoia and fear. I mean, it's unbelievable. And even like really trippy, I guess when I went, I, I said that word and I kind of thought of them that way, like that's how it's like, that was how my whole childhood because they were like casting out spirits and, you know, saying that people were possessed and, you know, like making this all so real that, you know, there's demons all around you. And yet, like, not giving us any tools to work with. Like, you're completely helpless. All you have is your faith that God will intervene. Just a kind of hope and a prayer. Literally, that's all you have. But yet, they would, like, go and have jobs and talk to people like normal and da-da-da. Like, you'd never know all this stuff. So, it was a odd head trip. So, I mean, yeah, I wanted to be away from it. But, um, I mean, I wasn't, like, I was also, like, kind of crazy myself and, like, I literally wasn't sure what reality was. I mean, I wanted to find out. As a young person, I mean, we had a community college in the town I grew up in. And I remember, you know, going to that as a really young person uh, and, and trying to find things where I could be like, what's really happening? What is reality? I mean, and, um, and being, having an interest, my mind would go towards the supernatural because that was, you know, I mean, that's all I knew. And so I remember finding um, Robert Monroe's book, um, like Journeys Out of the Body, I think it's called, from like the early 70s. And that made a big impression on me. And I'm like, I want to have an out-of-body experience and like prove what if this stuff is really real, you know, or, or not. And like, and then I got older and I got into psychedelics and I was like obsessed with like opening the doors and trying to find out what's real and with spirits and all this stuff. And I mean, I went down rabbit holes, and that wasn't necessarily healthy for me. 
so all, that's all in the midst of me still living with my parents, you know, like I'm saying, you know, so I was searching and flailing around and just being a crazy person trying to be sane. I thought I wanted to be a philosopher, but I, could, I had no idea how to be kind of disciplined and diligent and careful and all the things you need to do to be rational. Right. <laughs> so... How did you come into contact with psychedelics while you're still living at home with the uh, the ultra-religious... Well, that was when we moved up. That was when I was 15 and moved mm -hmm. up. Of course, it wasn't before then because I would have never known any way to get access to anything like that um, when I was younger. But then when I got into... Uh, you know, I had 50 people in my class of, of you know high school before we moved, and then I went to like 500 or something, much bigger school... All these people I don't know that are much more urbane you know, than I was, and all these options. Um, I mean, there weren't even like skaters or anything when at my school. It wasn't big enough. I mean, it was like, <laughs> you know, the subcultures were very limited. So I found people where they introduced me to pot, and then, you know, sometime later, found out about mushrooms and then about acid. Now, most of my psychedelic use was when I was older, in my 20s, so after I had left the house. So, I mean, I left as soon as I thought I could, you know, when I graduated from high school. So, but. Wow. You know, I was raised Southern Baptist, but I basically became an atheist in my teens. And then when I started doing psychedelics, uh, I had read like Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land, mm -hmm. which was, you know, it's very mystical, but from a science fiction writer's perspective, but it was also very hippie free love. It was kind of a, you know, a blueprint for the, the 1960s hippie movement, even though Heinlein himself is this really rigid military type dude. But uh, from that, I got into some like new age spirituality, like the, um, what's his name, Richard Bach? Yes. Yeah, so Jonathan Livingston Seagull mm -hmm. and... The Adventures of a Reluctant Messiah, Illusions, that's the title. Yeah, so I was I was kind of on that vibe when I was getting into psychedelics, which is to say, like, very mainstream, uh, very light and fluffy, happy mysticism. I'm familiar. I, 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 in fact, I really I love all that material you just mentioned, mm -hmm. and I read all that and enjoyed it a lot, so... I don't consider it fluffy. I certainly don't consider Highland fluffy. Um, Stranger so. in a Strange Land, I think, is kind of yeah. fluffy. I mean, some of his others... I mean, he had a long writing career, and he went through... I don't know if he ever took psychedelics. It's kind of hard to believe he wrote Stranger in a Strange Land without, you know, at mm -hmm. least a couple acid trips. Right. <laughs> I guess it just has a fondness of my, in my heart, because when I read it, being a younger person, I mean, I greatly romanticized it and thought it was some, you know truly was some great ideal. I think the darkest stuff I read in that period was like Philip K. Dick and H.P. Mm -hmm. Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. Philip K. Dick could, one of those, well, both of those people and Lovecraft, they can genuinely mess with my head, uh, especially back when I was reading them when I was younger. I mean, I don't know what those guys were doing, wherever they were coming from, you know, psychically. I, I mean, I can still... <laughs> I'm, I'm still pretty open to what is really going on. So, as far as I'm concerned, Philip K. Dick and H.P. Lovecraft are mad scientist, genius, mystic, you know, shaman that are genuinely casting some spells that are doing some 
some real shit, you know, because I'll have strange, you know, very interesting dreams, not just some, you know, um, silly regurgitation, but genuinely weird, you know, dreams that, that influence my life, you know, if I get depth, it really reading, you know, Dick or Lovecraft for month or two. <laughs> <laughs> so back to your, your childhood uh, and your, your teenage years, this is the 80s, right? I was born in 72, mm-hmm. so, yeah. So uh, we're both Gen X, I think I'm early Gen X, you're somewhat later Gen X. I graduated class of 86. I graduated class of 1990. So, so we're yeah. talking late 80s, early 90s then. Mm-hmm. Um, where did you go from there? I mean, you're not living... How long did you live with your parents, or how long did you live in that community? Right. Well, I left when I was 18 and uh, moved out and went to college and uh, went, ended up going to MU. And I thought I wanted to be an English teacher. I thought I, I'd like... Well, you know, it wasn't that deep of a of a ambition, but honestly, but I thought that that would work for me. I love reading and writing and, and I thought I would like that environment of, um, especially college, but I was also extremely idealistic. Um, and when I started doing student teaching and getting into the, the phases of actually doing what I thought I was going to do, I mean, I thought, my God, you know, I can't be a part of this system you know I, I was I'm politically you know judging it all for for um inculcating young minds and not truly opening them and not truly you know caring for their the genuine welfare of their psyches and so i didn't realize at the time of course that there's tons of options i could have worked at any number of alternative schools or tutored or all kind of things right mm-hmm. but i just had this knee-jerk reaction <clears throat> right. that was probably based in my own just angers or insecurities and other bullshit you know yeah, but i was just like fuck all this i'm not doing this you know yeah yes just being a like young person so then i'm like oh well i'm just gonna get a job doing whatever I don't care and then there again some fanciful idea that I was going to be a writer so I need life experience and so it doesn't really matter what it is so just you know get jobs waiting tables and um doing all kind of bullshit working in factories um a few times and um shit jobs and but I thought that was good for me and uh but then I started to kind of really actually enjoy cooking because I, I, in the course of these um, jobs, I got a job at a restaurant. And um, then I talked to this uh, chef and to let me be her apprentice. And that kind of started in my early 20s then, um, I desired to be a chef. And so then I did that for a number of years. And then when I was 25, I was working at a place. Um, was working at several different. I was working at like two different places, and at both places there was this girl. One one of the places I never saw her because she was a baker and she worked in the basement. I never saw her hardly, but at the other place uh, I'd see her pretty often and kind of get to know her. And um, then I got a job at a um, new place. And, well, what happened was she got a job at a new place, and she talked him into hiring me. 
so then we're working together side by side in this very intimate little kitchen. Um, it was at uh, Cafe Sebastian, which is uh, on the campus of the Art Institute in Kansas City. Oh, wow. And it was their little flagship, <laughs> little fancy restaurant where the Kemper family that owned it could just throw unlimited money. It, it was such a sweet gig. I mean, for a restaurant job, it, it was it was pretty cool. Um, we were only open for lunches and Friday night dinner and money was no object. They would just do the most obscene menus, like whatever <laughs> they wanted to do. And the chef was cool. And, um, and uh, the girl that uh, got me the job was the sous chef. And then I was just some other guy there helping like prep cook or whatnot. Um, apprentice, I guess, still at that point. And, um, so I'm working side by side with this girl and I'm like, this girl's really cool. She makes amazing food. So I don't know if you want me to go into all that, like the story of me meeting my wife, but that's what I'm starting to talk about there. But And that was at what age? 25. 25. Yep. Okay. Next year would be... 25. I have been on that campus of the Kansas City Art Institute many times. <laughs> I've tripped over at the uh, the Nelson many times. It's a good place to trip. Yeah, lovely grounds to walk around. And uh, even the inside too. Peaceful and yeah, absolutely. You know the there's a wooden statue of the Bodhisattva Guan Yin inside there. She's in he she. She's in a grotto. Um, do you know the one I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time mm-hmm. in the presence of that entity <laughs> on large, that's large nice. doses of LSD. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So, um, young love mm-hmm. is probably a good antidote to uh, religious yes. doomerism inculcated from a young age. <laughs> yes. And that's a good place to be. I mean, you know, in a, a pet project of a rich person on the campus of a... Mm. In art school? Yeah. It it was lucky. Um lucky for me. <laughs> yeah. So um I know when when we quit that we so we started dating there and when, when we both finally quit that job and we and did other things in life, we looked back on that and thought, What we could have milked that so <laughs> hard. Oh my god. because uh, the chef loved us. It was just such a tiny little crew of people, I mm-hmm. mean there. Um, there was literally only one other um, cook that would sometimes be there, you know, and there was like two dishwashers off and on, and the chef, and um, <laughs> hilarious characters, you know, this Mater D and some of these people that were there, and, and the chef, we were like, she loved us to death, we'd go hang out with her all the time in her house, and like, she, we were like her, I don't know, nieces or nephews or something, um, she wasn't that much older than us, but she, she kind of treated us, you know, like her progeny, and uh, <laughs> So yeah, we're like, oh my gosh, we could have run that place, but we thought we were there again, just being young and dumb, like, ah, we could do much better than this, this <laughs> come on, what is this, this is nothing. Don't know we set up <laughs> So, were you still in touch with your family at that point? I was in touch with them, yeah, you know, I hadn't, it's not like they beat us, you know, I didn't have such a kind of, you know, grievance against them that I'm like, I'm never going to talk to you again or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was just that I just don't want to be around you. I don't feel comfortable. I can't relate to you. You know, it's just completely alien. So, um, so, so I would go out there for holidays or, you know, as little as I could, you know, really. 
about now? Well, now it is different because in 2020, my dad died, and so my mom is living in this house by herself, and I feel beholden to her just as a human being, you know, just as a, as of course, hopefully, right, people get older, and they soften and get more compassion, and so that's happened to me too, and I try, I have, you know, I can't go the full distance, but I really try to um, be as kind and supportive as I can to her, even though I don't really know what to do because she won't leave that place because that's where she's supposed to be according to her religious views. You know, God told her to be there, so that's it. So, you know, um, I, I can't, if I want to be with her, I have to go there. And then I don't want to live there though, so it's hard to know what's going to happen in the future because I know she's going to need help, but I, I would dread the idea of living on that compound again, you know, to help my mother. But, you know, my kind of that, I don't know. My wife, too, is even less inclined towards that <laughs> than I am. Right. And so. you have a child. And yes, we have a child. Yes, she's 12. Um, and she's wonderful and kind and she's actually uh, because she doesn't have um, all the baggage um, that I have uh, or even my wife um, and is just disposed to be respectful towards people um, she doesn't have much of a problem being around them You're listening to the Sea Realm Podcast with your host KMO. Fast forward, I guess, to how long have you been listening to the Sea Realm podcast? I do not know the exact year because I'm not good with dates like that. Mm-hmm. But I believe I started with episode 19. So super early. Pretty much from the beginning. Like prioritization. Oh, wow. Yeah. I couldn't tell you what the oh, titles okay. were from back then. Um, <laughs> um, and what led you there? What was your incoming vector? Psychedelic Salon. Okay. One of those. Terrence McKenna. <laughs> gotcha. Years and years ago, I had found Terrence McKenna talks on some kind of bulletin board forum. I don't know what the hell it was in retrospect, but I, and I was, of course, enamored. And so then, um, however, whenever that was, that I was, um, I had just become a massage therapist and gotten my first uh, job, mm-hmm. and it was um, this real chill place where they, you know, just kind of trusted us to do whatever we thought we should do. So if I wasn't busy, I might sit around and surf the web for a little bit. So I was there one day, and I was looking for more Terrence McKenna talks, and I found Psych Doc Salon, and I listened to him, and I'm like, sweet, and this is what I wanted, and, and then, hey, what's this, the little button, you know, a little place you can click up here for see your own podcast well what is that so it's really the the very optimistic uh, we're approaching the 2012 concrescence you know message of terence mckenna that brings you to the sea realm and yes. I, I was not into the peak oil thing at that time you know but but the episode no you that was before that that was probably 2007 maybe or eight Maybe it was 2008. I don't know, but it was before the housing crash. 
Yeah, that, uh, that episode would have been... It was right before that. 2007. Okay. Probably first quarter of 2007. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was really my first conversation with Dmitry Orlov, which set me down the, the peak oil path. And, you know, Jim Kunstler came soon thereafter. So you were on board for the, the happy psychedelic stuff, and then the podcast takes this sort of doomer turn, but not hard. <laughs> not a hard turn. <laughs> You know, but definitely veering off into some... Well, I hope you won't feel, um, you know, uh, self-conscious about the fact that you definitely did influence me. Am I, <laughs> you know, I was a susceptible, you know, person, and there you are articulating the very thoughts that I was so intrigued with and afraid of. Um, I'm being facetious, but it did kind of, kind of coincide a little bit like that, where, I mean, like, I, yeah, I didn't know about peak oil, um... And so then when I heard about it, I'm like, holy shit, you know? And it actually, you know, kind of freaked me out because it, it, to me, in my state of mind, it had to bring about a revisitation of this whole paradigm that my parents had brought me up with. Because I'm like, you know, it's not, I still, of course, don't believe in their metaphysics and their ontology of the world, but... Um, like there's maybe they're onto something about this whole you know thing crumbling down you know even if it's just a you know financial meltdown and you know really hard times coming or with the peak oil I mean that's that's you know that's a long term situation you're in right I mean you got people like you know Kunstler writing books you know about you know the long this kind of you know, yes and, and well the fiction books too that came later mm -hmm. world but, made the, by world, hand yes. Yeah. So that kind of world, I'm thinking, is that possible? Like, I'm actually like, oh my God, like, were they right? This is exactly what they were saying. Like, this is the world that we're going to inherit pretty soon. And so I'm like, and they're already like super prepared. I mean, they're going through and like, let's see, do we have this size surgical needle? I mean, they are. Wow. Oh, I mean, you wouldn't believe how. It's not it, cans of beans. And it's, it's an arcana, you know, wow. of preparations that, you know. Like I said, my grandfather on the bank, like they're very organized, builder, builder type people. So if they set their mind to do it, I mean, by God, they got pioneer stoves and stuff and know how to use it. I mean, wow. they're ready as far as I can tell, as far as, you know, reasonably somebody might be ready. But anyway, so yeah, um, I'm thinking, is this really going to happen? And uh, yeah, so I kind of um, went down that road with you. So, but, you know, when you found your way out of it, I followed along and it really helped me like, okay, here's some resources, here's some ways of thinking, here's some different people saying different things. And maybe, yeah, you know, this is a little rash. Maybe this is a, a bit, um, too much too soon. Maybe it's more like so-and-so says, and look at this example from history or whatnot. And you got the John Michael Greer's and certain figures the cool head, apparently, cooler than mine, and um, that can talk some of us down and um, help us look at things, you know, and uh, ways that aren't so uh, uh, dramatic. Um, the first book I read by John Michael Greer was Apocalypse Not, mm -hmm. basically saying, look, this, this peak oil thing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Fossil fuels, petroleum is, is finite, and it is, you know, we are really dependent on it, but civilizations don't collapse overnight. They take hundreds of years to unwind. 
and that was in like 2008 that I read that. So that was fairly early. I mean, I was still on the peak oil train for years after I read that. Um, and the thing with, with John Michael Greer is he appears at the same places where, you know, the hardcore, fast collapse, doomer folks speak. And he really, really enjoys those live events, like particularly afterwards when he gets to just hang out and kind of hold court and people sit around and listen to him talk and they're drinking beer and whatever, you know, not when he's on the mic upstate on the stage, but afterwards he just, he lives for that. And so it, it occurs to me now, like many years after the fact that, yeah, he, there were so many times when he could have contradicted the people who were on stage with him and he just doesn't, you know, he's, he's happy to let those rough edges between his views and theirs just not ever make contact. Just not worry about it. I'm here to enjoy myself and I'm not going to make a stink. And, uh, I hadn't even planned to talk about that. I mean, that's just, just a realization that comes to me right now is that I think he's sort of been playing along, you know, he, he could have been more of a contrarian in that community. Like he could acknowledge the parts of the peak oil story that are supportable and make sense and then sort of draw a hard line. And he just never draws that hard line. I don't know him. I've never met him, but there are people uh, that I have met that are mature enough people where they would play it like that because they have the wisdom to see that barking at people and pushing on them and calling them out and no matter how factual your evidence is or convincing your arguments is not necessarily the best thing. So, um, which is a, a wonderful, impressive, you know, example to be around mm -hmm. in my mind. So, so given the trajectory that you've sketched out in this conversation, how did COVID hit you? You what want to the, jump ahead to COVID? Sure. What, what? Yeah. What have the last two years been like? Well, of course, by the time COVID happened, I was in a very different place. I, I'd, um, have, I guess by that time, a 10-year-old daughter who was the most life-changing event that we had had. Uh, I don't think that we were at all mature in any sense until we had the kiddo. And it, um, so um, when COVID happened, by that time we had a business that we ran from our property and we homeschooled our daughter, so, you know, I mean, just speaking personally, to my own personal story, I, I kind of loved COVID, I mean, the effects <laughs> on my life, because um, by that time, I, I was not all that social of a person, I, we had a little place out in the country that I was more than happy to spend all my time at, I couldn't get enough time uh, to just walk out and sit at the creek all day I mean to, to, to do yoga and meditate to take walks to write in my journal to listen to podcasts to read books to hang out with my daughter I mean that's what life's for in my mind my life <laughs> I was getting to do everything I always wanted to do but was too busy to do or had all these obligations that was calling on me 
I mean, it was wonderful even with family, like that first year, like, you know, no Thanksgiving, no Christmas, like, and a lot of our family is very liberal and very afraid of it all. And so it's just like, you know, forget about it. You're completely off the hook. You can do whatever you want, you know, and you have all your time. Like, that was wonderful. <laughs> I mean, so. And here. And I wasn't scared check. about getting it. Personally, I was not at all, except right at first when I didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. But over time, I felt like it was greatly exaggerated and I was not personally worried whatsoever. Um, my wife was more so, but she's just a little bit of a hypochondriac, just as a person. That's just part of her structure. And so, but we, that's not, it wasn't a problem between us. You know, if she wants to be more cautious, that's fine. She's not very social either. So we just, you know, didn't go out much, but for whatever, if we had different reasons, it, it all came together in the end. So we enjoy each other's company. Fortunately, you know, we met working together. We've always worked together. We like working together. Uh, we like spending time together, you know. Um, but we also understand, you know, personal time is good too. So, so you know, all our, our the little relationships. Some people I heard about stories of people getting stuck at home, and it was really stressful and upsetting or depressing or whatever because it was hard to be with whoever they happened to live with. Mm -hmm. But in my, I was fortunate that I mean, it was really a joy to spend time with my wife and child at the time so but what did you think of uh, responses you were seeing from other people online well I mean at first like a lot of people I was just trying to understand what was going on it took me a little while to um, become incredulous but you know and I really limit my media intake pretty severely I, I don't watch TV at all I don't I'm not on Twitter I'm not I don't do any of that stuff you missed a lot I, of the craziness um, from just not being on Twitter so I just have very select channels I yeah. mean that's you're one of them um, and there's you know a handful of others that I don't that I check in with um, what are some like of those Sam other Harris okay. at the time yeah. was I thought being he's actually more liberal politically than I am but he at least had a calm rational perspective at, or it seemed like early on at the time um, oh who else you know I don't even know offhand like I say I mean it was probably not more than three or four sources um, I mean yeah I checked in with NPR but I was already a little bit incredulous with them um, so Anyway, but once I um, passed through all of that, um, I just kind of stopped paying attention. I mean, I uh, that's not one of my causes, or uh, I don't. It's not like a domain where I find like a really motivating symbolism to kind of work with. Like, I mean, it's um, doesn't really resonate to me. It um, so. All right. Lucky you. <laughs> really. Yeah. So I'm sure, I mean, you, you've kind of brought it up in passing, but I haven't asked you anything at all about your politics. I'm not all that political. Mm -hmm. So I don't 
really have very sophisticated politics. I like listening to people talk about it sometimes, different uh, points of view and perspectives. And but you know, I also like Victorian romances or <laughs> you know what gothic horror, science fiction, or all kinds of things. I like stories, and so uh, a lot of times for me the political stories are like um they're too cerebral like they're I can't like get into them like emotionally enough this is just me mm -hmm. I mean <clears throat> but you know there again probably my upbringing like I was just raised like steeped in mythology and a palpable you know visual sense of um the symbolism that's being kind of lived through and like the language of politics is just so dry and boring and, and like fake and manipulative and I mean you know I'd rather watch like a film noir or a con man or something like you know in a movie or something so a lot of times than listen to a politician um, so I understand that it, that it has significance and I appreciate people I, I'm not trying to denigrate it. I'm, I can only just speak for my own in my own mind. I, I it's also just the fact that like I don't have a mind for it. Like I'm not good at that thinking that way, kind of strategic and you know like that some way of being like that where it's like okay, how can we get stuff done? We have this bureaucracy we got to work with. All right, you know I've had friends that are like that, like you know different kind of people like. I had a friend that was a social worker and we were all drunks and fuck ups, you know? But she was good, she could cut through the bureaucracy. She's like, you need benefits? We'll get you benefits. We're gonna figure this out. Like, here's this form, here's that form, here's what you need to say, here's this angle, here, talk to this person. I can't do any of that, you know? So, and that's part, that's, I guess, that's some of my associations with politics. Like, I mean, how you, you got this, like, really complex bureaucratic system and how can you work with it to make things happen how do you say things in the right way project the right image you know give the right whatever it is i don't know or there's just some utopian thing where if you want to talk about what could be well then that's more like science fiction or whatever speculative fiction or something i mean that's super interesting i want to hear about that but i guess i don't have a good answer for you know how i would like things to be beyond just the common sense things of fair and what you know just to take the domination and oppression and you know all those things out of it let people be free actually care you know if let love rule or what <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you don't have to be super specific to want a better you know, better situation yeah i wish i had a better answer i'd love to hear someone tell me you know show me some you know fable you know story of like you know where like there's I don't know like um, people growing hemp and making their clothes out of it and you know do, you know little villages that are so really cute little medieval like type looking storybook villages and there's I mean I, to me I, I guess I don't know how to articulate that very well but it's just yeah it's like a common sense world anyone would want to live in where you know it's beautiful where it's interesting, where it's uh, human, you know, like archetypically human. So. And what Darth Vader world? <laughs> <laughs>
But you like science fiction. Science fiction is uh, it is lousy with dystopias nowadays. Yeah, but you know, well, we talked about Philip K. Dick and H.P. Lovecraft, and both of them, you know, they write stories in which there's a seemingly normal world, stable, sane, and a few individuals get caught into some sort of current which takes them into a part of reality that is fucked up. <laughs> really fucked up. Right. So so much so that they go insane. That's right. more the H.P. Lovecraft, the, you know, the, the Philip K. Dick's more... Um, I got so weird that I accessed this part of reality, which most people don't have any experience with. Right. Yeah. So you were you were drawn to that sort of uh, imagery yeah. and story structures. It didn't all have to be dark. Of course, mm-hmm. I would love for it to be hopeful. I mean, like, of course, probably the the you know the best book of all time mm-hmm. uh, would be Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series. Okay. In my mind, uh, I don't think you can do much better than that. So you got the darkness, and you always have to have the darkness. You have to have something, to, you know, some foil. You have to, you know, fight against something, right? Um, so it's no problem, really, uh, having darkness uh, as long as you have... I think that was the thing I was missing as a young person. I didn't feel like I had any tools. So one part of the story I could throw in that I haven't gotten to is my discovery of yoga. Ah, when does that take place? Um, when did that take place? Not so much the year, but you know, in yeah, your personal history. Um, I was it's been ten years ago. Oh, all right. It's thirty-eight, a little over ten years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's so, what we missed when we went straight to COVID. <laughs> we skipped over the yoga years. Yeah, we skipped over it, yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning of the yoga years. How did it start? Well, our daughter was born, and when she was two, I kind of had a crisis, a sort of psycho-spiritual crisis, and thought, I, I'm not fit to be a parent. You know, I'm insane. I, I, what do I need to do on behalf of this child? to uh, get my life in order enough that I can, you know, raise this child. And uh, I, was, I felt desperate. And desperate for direction because um, when she was two... Uh, well, i just come out of the a crisis of, you know, fear of, like, the, you know, with the housing crisis and all that, thinking that was going to precipitate financial meltdown, all this stuff. So, so I was um, um, looking for answers, looking for direction, new direction in my life. And I came into a little extra money, and so I bought a float tank. Oh, wow. And through the use of the float tank as a... Because at this time in my life, I, I had dropped off the use of psychedelics, partially for different reasons. Like um, one, because I was I was genuinely scared of some of the experiences I was having, like like with spirits and stuff. It just freaked me out. Two, um, I uh, developed this odd thing, like a physical thing, where um, it was like 
I sort of psychically felt like I was so um, dispersed and unintegrated that like my bot, my joints and stuff would get loose and stuff. So the last two times I had tripped before that time, my shoulder had become dislocated. Just through like psychic phenomena, like nothing, nothing physical that I could put my finger on. I mean, the last time it happened, I was sitting like in an, on my couch with my head in my hand. But that's all I remember. And then just, boop, it just slipped out. And then I, you know, it was stressful because sometimes I could get it back in and sometimes I would have to go to the hospital and have them put it back in. So, and you know, authority figures on acid, I, that did not mix with me. And so I'm like, I, I just have to set those aside for a while. So my ambition was to use the float tank in place of that, um, essentially as a meditation chamber. And, um, through the use of it though, I discovered these body blocks, places in my body that were just screaming out in tension and I didn't know what to do with them. It was like I couldn't go beyond that in my meditation to the journeys I wanted to take because these are like, you have to do something about this. There was a twist in my spine, there was a place in my throat. Um, those were the two main ones. And um, so I got, John Lilly's autobiography, I think it's called Center of the Cyclone, and I was reading it, the guy that invented the float tank, and, um, and he was saying, well, you can't just do the float tank, you have to do physical conditioning, and he recommended yoga as one of the things a person should do, with other things too, and I thought, okay, well, let me find a yoga teacher then to try to do something about these places in my body that I can't get past. And so I found a person that was in the Iyengar tradition. It's um, BKS Iyengar uh, developed this series of techniques and they're very specific. It's not Kundalini style where you're moving quickly and kind of abruptly and building up the energy um, or, or doing um, kundalini breathing where you're kind of building up the prana like some people do. This is um, a slow um, attenuation to a lot of details and um, trying to get gradually deeper into the asanas to release places in your body and coupled with meditation techniques after your asanas. And, that um, was the most life-changing, <laughs> like there was my daughter and then yoga. Um, those were probably the two biggest wow. life-changing <clears throat> um, events, you know, in my life that, uh, so, cause um, it was just such, it was so effective. And it was such a revelation, it was like, it was something I was looking for, I, th I think, but in, in a really positive way where it showed me like that symbols, metaphors, you know, I mean, that's really the, help, the most helpful thing about religious training, you know, it's just that it's, it's unfortunate, like when people take it all literally, you know, but you know, if you just look at Joe Campbell or any of these guys that, you know, help a young person see, it's not so useful in the literal. It's very useful though, it can be in the metaphorical. So when I realized that by creating space in my 
physical body, so to speak, to by you know opening up a space, uh, you know moving you know in a two directions at once, so you don't just have so you're pulling the rubber band apart. That that created psychic space. I mean, that was just like like mind blowing and, and kind of like this is too good to be true. I mean. So you're saying if I do down dog and open my spine, uh, my consciousness will will be more open as well. Uh, that's what I experienced, and that's what I do experience um, with it. So it's it's kind of, like I say, it's almost too good to be true um, that uh, that it's like that. But that's what I found. So the yoga that I'm familiar with is like. Brooklyn Jewish lesbian, you know, um, Vinyasa flow. Know, okay. Oh, you've you've never lived in Brooklyn. <laughs> right. um, yoga with mass appeal, you know, for New Yorkers. Uh, I, I I don't know much about Iyengar other than I, the people that practiced it to me were like hardcore, you know, like headstands without using your hands sort of people. <laughs> That's our core. Yeah, I do not. I mean, I I love headstand and do it, you know, every day. But um, I I have my head in between my forearms. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I've never even tried to do it uh, without. I can hardly imagine that. I don't have enough yoga blocks myself, but I, you know, in the studio, I'd like to stack the yoga blocks up so that when I'm doing mm. supposedly a headstand, really my head's not even touching the floor. It's Yes. It's on my shoulders and it's really stretching them out. Well, that's how it's supposed to be. It takes a fair amount of strength to hold it like that, uh, of course. My yoga teacher told me it should be a dime's worth of pressure on your head. You should actually contact, oh, this is in her view, mm -hmm. you should feel a subtle touch. But, yeah, subtle. Um, but she um, recommends three minutes at a time and... I've never been able to hold it for three minutes at a time with a dime's worth of pressure, just due to my physical strength. It hasn't worked up to that point. Mm -hmm. So, I haven't really pressed my weight training very hard. I actually joined a gym um, a few months ago, but then um, realized I had a hernia, so it helped me realize it, at least. So, But uh, a couple more weeks, says I can go back. Well... <laughs> <laughs> There was a time when I was doing only yoga, and then there was a time when I was doing yoga and weightlifting, and I thought at the time, wow, these things really go together. I wouldn't want to really do one without the other. And then the yoga just sort of fell away, and I was just doing weight training. Uh, and then COVID. <laughs> then the gym closed, and then a year, and really no exercise other than walking. Gained a bunch of weight. I've been back to the gym three times since I've been in Berryville. I joined the gym here. A very Christian gym, by the way. Like, you walk in the door, and there's an easel with a whiteboard on it, and there is the Bible verse of the week you know, written out by hand in English and Spanish. Yeah. Do they play Christian music? <laughs> they do. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I must, I've got to really want to work out. I've said this on the podcast many times, so it'll sound familiar <laughs> to the podcast listeners, but when I stop working out, everything in my life goes bad, even things that don't seem to be related to physical fitness. Uh -huh. And when I start working out again and keep working out, all that stuff gets better. Mm -hmm. So, I, I did a search 
uh, looking for the nearest yoga class, and the nearest yoga class to Berryville, Arkansas, is like thirty miles away. So, hmm. that ain't yeah. Um, so you never got, you never had a teacher that you really connected with, and um, that you can recall, you know, because that's to me one of the greatest. Uh, my yoga teacher was a firm believer in uh, passing teachings through physical presence mm-hmm. of another it's not something you get from a video or a book or whatever but I understand uh, there, whatever else maybe there's some metaphysical sense to it that you know uh, or whatnot but to me it's just that I have her voice in my head and uh, associated with her body mm-hmm. language and her presence of course and so I mean that's priceless uh, if you could ever get that the yoga teacher I connected with best um, his classes were not popular uh-huh. because, and, and he taught a fairly early morning class, although some of the early morning classes were super popular. Mm-hmm. But in, in his class, I mean, his, his physical stuff was nothing special, but he always had you doing something mentally as well that was really taxing mm-hmm. while you were doing the yoga. And a lot of times, uh, Olga and I were the only people in class. People just didn't like his, his approach. Oh, I see. But okay. I really liked it. <laughs> yes, um, yes. But his class got discontinued because, you know. Oh, that's too bad. It's a yoga studio in Brooklyn and they got to make money. And they yeah. Got to bring people yeah. in. And I wasn't paying. I was doing work studies. So, you know, <laughs> the fact that I was there for every class didn't didn't help him. <laughs> ah, man. Yeah. Well, I wonder what happened to him. You know, if he found, I mean, because it just doesn't take that many, but you do have to have some kind of audience for Yeah. What you doing? So, my teacher was a hard ass, you know, kind of too. Or, well, you know, asking you to do challenging things, but, but that's really wonderful. I mean, it's it's really, uh, to me, I don't have a lot of experience with this. I didn't play sports, um, or like some people. Or I don't know what all the examples are, but um, to have a sort of coach, if you will, like someone that's directing you and saying like. No, not like that, like this. Mm-hmm. But they're doing it from such a loving place, and not some namby-pamby, oh, but you think it, you know. No, I mean, not fake, but real. Um, Martial arts teachers. Oh, that's just, I mean, God. I had a Tai Chi, tai chi teacher in uh, Port Townsend, Washington, who was, mm. you know, he was all about the Tai Chi. He was in great physical shape, even though he was his old. His name's Michael Gilman. You can find him online. Um, I, I say he was old. <laughs> he wasn't old. old. He was maybe as old as I am now. Yeah. Uh, but you know, in, in great shape. But you know, super, super gentle, and you know, meeting people where they are. And so he had a studio. Like he had his house, and then he had the studio right next door. And he's teaching classes, you know, for money um, every day. And then on Saturday, he teaches a free class in the park. Anybody can come. And you know, so he's just living it. Mm-hmm. And so. Mm-hmm. At the time, though, I was drinking too much, so I was not in a position to really reap the full benefit of that mm-hmm. that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah, I understand. Yeah. But yeah, the sorts of teachers that I've had, you know, that were that there was a physical component to it, and they were compelling people with a compelling vision. Was yeah, Michael, and um, a karate teacher in Japan who. You know, he didn't speak English, and I didn't speak much Japanese, but there was there was a good connection there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. 
I, I used to meet with my yoga teacher too, just to have a conversation like this, you know. Um, and um, the best psychologist, therapist, whatever. I, I'd been in talk therapy several times. I'd talked to many religious people, you know, looked for people to talk to. Um, that uh, that I could uh, be real with or get advice from. You know, just wise people. And, um, ah, that's so, that's wonderful too. To feel like you could, one of the things I loved about it was that she was unflappable. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not, not in any kind of fake way, just genuinely, you know, there's nothing you could say that would even make her raise her eyebrows, you know? So you, you just felt safe. Like you could, I mean, I could say the rant about the most insane fantasy, you know, or whatever it was, just like going down a deep well. Like just you know, put a, a you know marble dropped in honey. You know, like you could. It was absolutely cathartic feeling to have someone not worry about you, not be concerned, not react. Just to have it like, you know, some people can. You ever meet someone? Well, you were talking about people that that were like that for you. I've known a few people like that. Um, where you genuinely feel like not only listened to, but somehow like understood and accepted and just like, and it's such a peaceful feeling, you know, um, and such a safe feeling, even though they're not doing anything, you know, like overt at all. That's what they're not doing. They're not reacting, you know, because um, they're like not afraid of you, you know, they're not afraid of life. They're not afraid something's about to happen that's going to scare me. They're not afraid no. of your disapproval. Either. No, nothing. No. There's nothing you can do to them. And it's just, ah, oh, you know, such a liberating, wonderful feeling when someone can do that. I would love to be able to do that for people. That's, like, my goal in life now, the days, is, like, do no harm. I've given up trying to figure out what's really going on. Of course, I, you know, some part of me. <laughs> That's not entirely true. But I mean, you know, of course, of course, there's obsessional little sub, you know, routines going that are, you know, that's all they think about. But there's a greater part of me, if you will, um, that is, uh, appreciates the value of and sort of aspires towards, you know, letting go of, uh, those kinds of questions, demands on the universe, and just uh, enjoying life, you know, being grateful, just trying to do, do no harm, just being kind, trying to be loving, trying to see any opportunity to lift someone up instead of put them down, you know? So I so, suck at it, but at least, you know, that's what I like to do. So <laughs> do no harm. <laughs> Look for opportunities to be benevolent. I guess that leads us directly into the Trump years. Mm, does it? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but um, like, from my own perspective, I I lost interest in the doom stuff long before I, you know, made a pronouncement about it. Mm. And then I remember it was in a conversation for the Vault with uh, Bob Brown, who's now the only person I talk to about COVID, really. Um, at least, you know, for the podcast. Uh, and we were, you know, he was still on the, the peak oil doom track. And I just realized, you know, not only am I not into this anymore, I reject this. 
I, mm-hmm. you know, I repudiate my involvement in this. Mm-hmm. And that came to me, you know, in that interview, that recorded interview. And, you know, when I said it to Bob, that was the first time I said it. And you know, thereafter, you know, I revisited it a few times. And I'm like, yeah, that's where I am. Um, I, you know, there could be a coronal mass ejection tomorrow that takes down all electricity. That could happen at any time. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't so far. And uh, I'm not going to worry about it. And, yeah, petroleum is a finite thing, and we're going to run out of it eventually, but not tomorrow or the day after. So I'm not going to worry about that. And, you know, there's all, I mean, right down to a pandemic. And to me, it has seemed like uh, the SARS, like I was living in Australia when SARS happened. It was 2002. We were coming back 2003 and, you know, passing through Thailand. And, you know, I remember... As we got off the plane, there were people standing off to the sides of the um, the walkway, you know, the most movable walkways that they attached to the planes, um, with thermometers. That, you know, they were taking people's temperature at a distance, and they had, like, thermal cameras set up looking for people with fevers. And then a few years later, when we'd first moved to Maryland, I guess it was 2008, and then the next year, 2009, um, there was another flu outbreak Obama was president, Biden was vice president, and I remember Biden saying some outrageously, um, you know, provocative stuff like, I, I would never get on public transportation. It's like the government and various, and the media were trying to hype up fear around the virus, both in, in 2003 and in 2009, and people just weren't interested. Like, they, they didn't bite, you know? And this seems like the third iteration where the government's really been trying to get people to be afraid of this virus, and this time it worked. Mm-hmm. And wow, things have really changed dramatically once people got the fear. Mm-hmm. You know, now now we have the, the professional managerial class is now the telecommuting class. They don't have to go to the office anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're serving coffee or bagging groceries or building houses or whatever, yeah, you still got to go to the place where the work is done, but those people who are managing like labor and information flow and managing opinions, they get to stay at home and do everything on zoom, Mm -hmm. which has caused a lot of people, you know, to move far from home, you know, far from the dense city centers, um, as Balaji, what's his name? Uh, Srinivasan was saying on the, uh, Tim Ferriss podcast, uh, it used to be, you know, in Silicon Valley or in tech, if you were serious about a deal, you were there in person. And now, if there is no telecommuting option, you're not serious. You know, now people, particularly wealthy or well-to-do professional type people, have the absolute right to be isolated and at a distance from everybody. And this has all happened in a very short period of time. They've generated huge amounts of new money, you know, which degrades the existing money, basically punishing people who save. Um, Things have just accelerated because the fear worked this time. Because I think anybody, I mean, the lethality of this virus is just not that high. And the people that it kills weren't going to live that long anyway in many cases. So I think it's something about the marketing that's different this time. Mm. Not about the transmissibility or the lethality of the virus. And man... I mean, for me, the bright side is uh, because 
the U.S. dollar is being diminished so quickly by overproduction, that's an opportunity to get in early with crypto. Mm-hmm. You know, and for every dollar they print, Bitcoin is worth more. You know, it fluctuates wildly day to day, but over the long call, and not even that long. I mean, we were talking about it earlier, just the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now it's down to the high 40s, where, mm-hmm. you know, in 2017, it hit 20,000 for the first time, and, you know, that was mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yes, no, no, of... there's opportunities uh, um, to be had. So, so are you saying then, like, like you feel more sort of you know, there's a lot at stake, and so you, the political consciousness, you know, is sort of like a line in the sand you're drawing. You know, you're saying I'm, I'm actively resisting, you know, what they're trying to pull off, you know, in this kind of. Uh, Dominator system. Mostly, what I'm trying scheme. to resist is other people's craziness. Yes, there there is manipulation going on, done by people in power, and it's having dramatic effects on our lives. At the same time, it's not worth devoting your. It's not worth obsessing over. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. But at the same time, things are happening very quickly right now. You know, so the tension for me is I don't want to get caught up in people's craziness, but at the same time, I want to be cognizant of what's happening because in times when things change or when processes accelerate, there is an opportunity, you know, to catch the updraft. I see. Is that the main gist then of your, uh, that's quite a shift possibly, well, I don't know why you were a doomer. Maybe you're there again. You're like, well, what's the <laughs> angle here? You know, I want to ride some kind of wave. No, um, uh, the, there's no angle with the doomerism. It was uh, <laughs> more of, I want I want some some justification. I want some, you know, smart-sounding authority figure to um, lend weight to my belief that things are messed up. Uh-huh, yeah. And the whole, you know, bit about life isn't fair and, and let's just level the playing ground a little exactly a little sooner you, you think you know with your fancy career and you know your nice yeah. car and everything yeah. and your house that you're doing well yeah. well guess what yeah the lights are going out you're about to your money's about to be worthless yeah yeah if you don't know how to garden or you know work mm-hmm. a mule or you're you're screwed you yeah. know the tables are about to be turned but i'm so glad you know that didn't happen because even though i was entertaining such, you know, reversal fantasies, I couldn't have supported myself. Mm-hmm. I like to garden, but I still need to go buy food. <laughs> yes. Yes, we realized that very quickly. Uh, we, I think we spent a couple of years under the delusion that it was going to be possible for us to support ourselves before we realized that was utterly ridiculous. Yeah, that, that is a dangerous <laughs> delusion, but it's a very romantic one. The idea is... I'm going to get away from this technocratic society. I'm going to get away from debt. I'm going to get away from, you know, wage slavery. And I'm just going to go and every action that I take is going to be meaningful because it's going to be contributing to my, you know, providing sustenance and shelter to myself and my family. And it's like everything I do will be meaningful. It's it's so attractive, particularly to young people. Yes. But there, there are expectations that technological society imposes upon you. And it assumes that you will take advantage of all the, you know, the, the leveraged energy use. You, know, mm-hmm. you have a certain output capability in industrial society, and you owe a portion of that to whomever, the government, 
you know, if you're divorced and you have kids, child support, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. You have to pay. You have to be making some money because you owe it to other entities. And you were not prepared. You were not right. trained from an early age, like in some ye old age, yeah. to live that way. So you have to exactly. learn it for yourself, for, like out of books and videos and, you know, whoever you happen to find around. Like, good luck with that. So yeah. <laughs> I... I um, I don't necessarily get irritated, but I feel a special sort of danger when I see older folks, you know, folks of retirement age who didn't didn't have a farm, you know, who worked a normal job until late in life when they got the back to the land bug or the peak oil bug or whatever, who would then advise young people to adopt that lifestyle early. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. It's like, unless you're brilliant at it. Right it's really going to take a lot out of you and then you're going to be starting from scratch later in life. Surely, it's, it's hard to understand how those people didn't know that. Um, why, what was their motivation for coaxing people like that? <laughs> Just... <laughs> uh, uh, you know, yeah. to some extent, the sincere conviction that industrial society has a short runway. Mm, I see. Even if you, you know, flail at it, at least you're, you're doing something, you get started, or else, because else, you know, you're doomed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm at the position now where if industrial society crashes, most people die, I'll be one of them, mm-hmm. so it goes. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, I'm not prepared for any, yeah. any of that. I, I don't need to see no. what life is like 20 years after the crash. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm much more interested in seeing what life is like 20 years after the not crash. Mm-hmm. Like 20 years down the line from where we are now with uh-huh. all the processes exciting and horrific mm-hmm. what's it going to go I mean there is no culmination there is no end of the story there's just right. you know, the part of the story that I get to see yes so we want the last bit that we see to be an ending of some sort so you know it's, it's natural to, to mm-hmm. look to try to impose that structure of your own yeah. viewpoint onto the larger world basic narrative arc I mean yeah, come on people we need to we live on stories <laughs> and uh, you know objective history doesn't really provide them where's this going? They, they wouldn't have written all this into it if it wasn't a pretty cool ending right <laughs> <laughs> which I get to see <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know somebody born half a century ago yeah they don't get to see how it comes out but I get to see how it comes out yeah no <laughs> we got all kinds of options you know we can have the general AI come on the scene or Terrence McKenna's time machines come back and appear before us or the <laughs> eschaton uh, with the you know uh, royal imagery from the Bible and all kind of good stuff just the gradual depletion of the environment due to you know global warming and etc mm. I do my best really I, I don't even pay that stuff much attention I, I greatly value people like you that can you know look at all that and have uh, uh, enough of a objective sensibility I don't know just to want the truth I mean uh, enough to uh, uh, try to find out what it is um, in some genuine way and help articulate it to yeah, the rest of us so um, because I can't I just can't 
like my nervous system is just is still not really healed it, it feels kind of frayed and you know just raggedy and if I you know I'm out there in that headspace of all the crazy you know I, I went through a, a kind of Neil Kramer phase too like because you had him on the podcast that's where I heard about him right mm-hmm. and he you know characterized it as uh, unveiling you know and you can't do it all at once you know you have to kind of do it in parts right kind of lift the veil and go ooh there's some ugly stuff there you know oh there's some quote unquote conspiracy theory um, or something that you know uh, changes your worldview and it might be hard pill to swallow somehow in one way or another for whatever reason um, like I, I did so much of that when I was younger and I was kind of so committed to that um, to try to get to the truth because um, I wanted to know it so much and now like I say I, I've kind of softened on that and it's just not so important to get into all the nitty-gritty details and I just can't do it so you know I'm like someone that I trust and and I feel you know some confidence in their soul if you will you know I'm like what do you think is going on you know what are you seeing what is, where, what's alive in you? Just share that with me. That's all I need to know. Uh, that's a filter that I can deal with, you know. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds to me like uh, parenthood and yoga have given you purpose that you don't really need to look far outside yourself to find anything more. Uh, well, that's, that's me. That's my, yeah. I'm not, you know, active in my community per se. I'm not, I, I feel like I'm, you know, I, I guess uh, my, I'm not that ambitious. I mean, I don't know. Like, my ambition is to, like, just to, you know, be, have some peace of mind in my own mind and not just be a crazy person and to be, you know, a good environment for the people I'm around, which happens to mostly be my um, daughter and wife and my you know extended immediate family and a few friends and uh, you know we interface with the public through our business and give people food that hopefully is helpful to them you know it's not um, like um, cynical like our you know what we do for for money um, feel good about that but then again I don't like you know think it's some great humanitarian effort you know just make food for people so um, feeding people though I mean, <laughs> it, it's one of those things that you there's just absolutely no justification required you know people need to eat i feed them yes <laughs> yes yes pretty much my wife's maiden name was houseman mm-hmm. so she comes from a line of innkeepers you know ah, yeah all right so it's just kind of like yeah well and she kind of really started and run you know i'm a helper in the business i'm like a the prep cook i do you know low level it work like you know the website and the email list and stuff like that and but she wrote has written all the recipes and you know kind of uh yeah comes out of her blood more seems like (laughs) the houseman's well i'm gonna turn off the recorder all right man but we'll talk more okay (laughs) On the Sea Realm podcast, a mind that is stretched by a new experience can never go back back to its old dimensions. That was James, and that was his story.
He wasn't entirely satisfied with the first telling of his story, and I invited him to extend on it or amplify or, you know, in any way he wanted to uh, revise it in writing, and I would read what he wrote. So he sent me the following. James writes, A few days ago, KMO and I met and recorded a conversation. I haven't listened to the recording, but from what I can remember, I didn't do a very good job of telling my story. I sat down and wrote this as an addendum. From my earliest memories, my imagination was populated with fearful imagery. The everyday world of the five senses was not very important to my parents. What mattered was the unseen spiritual dimensions, where spirits moved around us constantly, most of which were dark spirits, which meant us harm. It was a frightening world to live in, to be told to always look beyond the surface and to expect to find deception. But there were no weapons to fight with, no tools to navigate with. There wasn't even a purpose, as far as I could tell. The earliest childhood dream that I can remember was a recurring dream that I called the thing at the window. In the dream, I awoke from sleep in my bed and sat up in the darkness. Outside my window, behind a closed curtain, was a dark presence that existed in a cloud of unknowing. My imagination would not give shape to it. If I said that I was paralyzed with fear, that wouldn't be quite right. It was beyond fear. I felt helpless doom. The force outside the window had absolute power over me, and I could do nothing to resist. Then I would wake up from my dream again in my bed and in darkness of night and feel the dread of the thing still at my window, perhaps really at my window now, but without the intensity of the dream energies to fuel my imagination, I would eventually drift off back to sleep. I was still having this dream when my grandfather began waking up in the night to be told to pick up a pen and paper and write. I remember him saying that he didn't want to do it, that he argued with the forces that prompted him, but they would not let him be, so he transcribed their words. The words said that he was a special person, called out of ordinary reality to an important task. The words said that his family was to follow him in this calling, and that the calling was to prepare for the end of days. This created a purpose for my family, and I was told that this was my calling as well. I couldn't help but believe all this as a child. The process of breaking away from their thinking began in adolescence, and around the time that I went to college, I had decided that there were no spirits, no God, no devil, and that my family was insane. I closed the door to all of that and thought it would be easy to keep it closed. I had banished those primitive ideas from my reason. It wasn't too difficult to live with my new paradigm of secular beliefs and goals. For a while. But I was more damaged than I realized, and the changes to my beliefs I'd made didn't go as deep as I thought they did. I think that we are all affected by some degree of developmental trauma growing up, but we don't know how to process it, and so it affects us unconsciously. My upbringing was more dramatic, more exaggerated than some, but not entirely different. We are given stories, and we create stories. The stories may help or hurt, but to find out why we believe a given story is not so simple. And to let go of a story that provides us with a meaningful identity, to open to a new story, can be incredibly difficult. Years passed, and I hadn't made wise choices, especially regarding my financial well-being. I felt increasingly stressed and vulnerable to the everyday aspects of making a living. I was smoking tons of pot and succumbing to paranoia. I felt resentful towards the powers that be for perpetuating a rigged system of domination. I felt unempowered in general. 
I had no idea how primed I was to believe in the peak oil narrative. It was as if it was custom-made for me. It served all my unconscious programming. It was a secular proof that the world as we know it is, in fact, ending. And good riddance. Goodbye to the unfair, technocratic, dehumanizing system. No debts to repay, and now there is a mission, an urgent purpose. And we who see this get to be special. Forerunners to the new paradigm. I was scared about it, yes, but there were tangible things to do that would make a real difference in my life. Of course, it wasn't actually so easy to become self-reliant. I would have never been able to be the hero I imagined being. It was a fantasy. It wasn't until years after that, through having a child, through following KMO's journey out of the peak oil narrative, through developing a yoga practice, and by coming out of the stress of poverty, that I was able to look back and see how much my beliefs, all along, had come out of unresolved psychological issues within myself. I had heard of motivated reasoning, but wasn't motivated enough to apply it to myself. Now, I don't know what the future holds. There are various catastrophic events that could happen, but I don't think much about them. It can be interesting to consider some of them. Many things are possible. Many things are true. But just because something is true, it doesn't mean it deserves your thought. Having experienced how confused a person can be, and how powerfully the mind can grasp onto an idea for reasons the conscious mind is not aware of, I put most of my mental energies into untangling the mess in my own mind. The best way I've found to do that is through yoga and meditation. Meditation, more than anything else, helps to reorient my awareness from negative to positive. It purifies my imagination. So I'm content to live a normal life, to be the best husband, father, son, human being that I can. The yoga tradition that I follow was created by BKS Ayangar. He said, quote, Instead of trying to make the leap from human to divine, focus on making the leap from subhuman to human. Close quote. There's enough purpose, meaning, and fulfillment there for me to last the rest of my life, just working on being the best, ordinary human being that I can be. All right, so... Meditation. Yoga. Uh, for me, it's meditation and weightlifting, but they, I think, serve a similar function. Uh, weightlifting serves a similar function for me that yoga does for James, I think. And that is a much-needed element of physicality to one's life and practice. And I used to practice yoga regularly. Uh, when I lived in Brooklyn, I did work-study at a nearby yoga studio, which I described in you know what might come across as uh, dismissive-sounding language in the conversation with James. That was a great, great time. That was a, a, the, one of the best things about living in Brooklyn was that arrangement that I had with the yoga studio and practicing yoga as much as I did and being as integrated into the community that forms around you know, yoga studios, particularly in big cities. So I won't be mentioning names here, but of course, we're in a crazy time. <laughs> COVID. COVID has made us crazy. Trump. Trump made the Blue Tribe crazy. COVID's made everybody crazy. Or at least it seems that a great many people have uh, taken up the invitation that COVID has laid down to just Go nuts, <laughs> you know? And I'm not going to recount the sins of the various tribes around COVID. All I have to say is this. I do care what the truth is, but unless it's really bizarre, I mean, something that I haven't heard before, something that I haven't entertained, I mean, if, if, unless it's just really way out there, 
I don't plan to get caught up in anybody's COVID narrative, and I don't plan to expend a lot of emotional energy on it, and I certainly don't intend to link my public persona to any given position on the topic. I have been vaccinated. I had two shots of Moderna. I have no intention of getting any further boosters. I was living in Vermont, you know, when COVID started, but I was already sick of Vermont and I was sick of the Blue Tribe sanctimony that was part of what I didn't like about Vermont. But mostly what I didn't like about living in Vermont was that I, I just lived a very, very solitary existence. And I was looking to move. In fact, I had made an exploratory trip to San Juan, Puerto Rico to see if that might be a good place to move to. And I decided that, yeah, that is a good place. I'm going to move there. And COVID basically came down like a wet blanket on, on all my plans and, you know, all, everybody's plans, really. And so I sat there in my apartment in Bellows Falls, Vermont, for another year and a half. But now I'm here in Arkansas. And I'm here in Arkansas, one, I mean, just, I'm not going to be too self-revelatory here, but just to say that I'm here for some human contact. And also I'm here to save money on rent. Uh, to save up money to get over to the Philippines, where I have somebody waiting for me. But, you know, as, as somebody who makes his living as a podcaster, I realize I don't put out very many podcasts, particularly if you're only aware of these free podcasts. And also, for a podcaster in 2021 to not be interested in talking about COVID or anybody's obsessions around the topic, uh, be they the, the Blue Tribe obsession with demonizing the, you know, the vaccine holdouts or, you know, the vaccine holdouts and their paranoid conspiracy notions. And, you know, there might be some factual basis to them, but there's also a lot of paranoia that gets infused into the, you know, the narratives that emerge from that raw data. I'm just not interested. I, I'm not interested in anybody else's crazy. I think I worked through my crazy with uh, the peak oil stuff and I'm just not interested in replacing it with any other variety of crazy. And if my repeated use of the word crazy <laughs> attached to people's beliefs around, you know, COVID-19 and what may have caused it and what role, you know, various actors, governmental and extra-governmental, non-governmental, supra-governmental actors and agencies might have, you know, what agendas might be at play. If you're really caught up in all that, I mean, I don't mean to offend... I'm just not interested. I'm much more interested in the psychological and tribal dynamics at work under the banner, you know, under the aegis of COVID-19 than I am in any underlying theory about where the virus came from or, you know, what's in the vaccines and, you know, what ultimately they're meant to do. I find the narrative that, you know, the vaccines are a uh, eugenic or depopulation mechanism that they are a key ingredient in some master plan to either control the population like zombies or to eliminate huge swaths of them. I, I think that people propagating that narrative are contemptible, particularly the ones who propagate it simply because it's just so palatable. It's just so attractive. Do they believe it? Eh, whatever. They can articulate the story, and there's plenty of people anxious to hear it. So, yeah, sure, they believe it. Why not? But if you're not getting paid to propagate that narrative, I would encourage you to do a little bit of introspection. Look for the things that really attract you to that narrative. 
you know, it's not the evidence for the factual basis of it that's attracting you. I guarantee you that. It's something else. And a single 15-minute meditation is probably not going to fish that out. But, you know, uh, as James has discovered and uh, as I have discovered, meditation, you know, a simple daily meditation practice is very helpful. And, you know, it's not shooting for the moon to establish one either. But hey, I'm not here to preach at you. <laughs> I'm here to provide you with content that I hope you find entertaining, enlightening, salutary. <laughs> and here at the end of the podcast, uh, well, I'm here to encourage you to check out my Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash KMO. I put up a lot of stuff there that is not behind a paywall for anybody to find, including links to all of my YouTube videos. While I have been away from my podcasting gear, you know, it's been packed up for the move, I've still been using my phone to make a steady stream of YouTube content. And if you are unaware of it, if you didn't know I had a YouTube channel, or if you knew, you know, in the back of your mind that I did, but you've never checked it out, I would encourage you to check it out. It's not easy to find on YouTube itself, but you can find links to my YouTube videos on Patreon. Again, patreon.com slash KMO. Also, check out the Geb webcomic, G-E-B-B dot I-O. That's the Greater Earth Betterment Bureau dot I-O. Sea Realm Vault listeners, there will be a new Sea Realm Vault podcast within the next few days. Thank you very much for your patience. Also, thank you to not just the Sea Realm Vault subscribers, but Sea Realm Vault subscribers who, in addition to paying their 7 or $8 a month, uh, also send in the occasional extra donation. And just today, I got such a donation from Leet Minion, who seems to have a supernatural sense for when my PayPal account is in the red. So thanks to Leet Minion for putting me back in the black. Cue the ACDC song. Or don't. There's other music playing in the background right now. I'll talk to you again soon. Stay well. <laughs>